From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. First ever Wharton Moneyball After Dark edition. This is coming to you Monday evening. We are scattered across parts of the U.S. and needed to schedule it this way. I think in seven years we've never done it this way, fellas. The whole team is here. In a few different time zones, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner. This is Cade Massey. How are you, gentlemen? Excellent. Doing well. Good. Yep. Good. 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 I hope you've got uh, got your uh, Yankees game or sports of uh, of interest on because it's that time of day. I hope you've got an adult beverage in hand, and I'm hope you're ready to talk a little bit of sports analytics, maybe coronavirus analytics, and how these things intersect. We're going to follow our usual format. Going to do the first half hour or so on coronavirus it's the context of our lives right now much less context of sports and then we'll talk a little sports i'm excited about some things i'm curious what you guys are excited about but let's kick it off i know what i think is number one because it's all over both of those topics but i'm curious what you guys think is number one and what has caught your eye professor weiner you got something i do have something to say but it's not it's probably not the the most recent news my my daughter asked me something yesterday which i think is a a good question she said to me dad when is this going to end Right. And and I'm like, and I said to her, my response was, why are you asking me? My predictions have been terrible. (laughs) And, and if we, and it's, maybe we should have an accounting. I think it's important. Um, I predicted a long time ago, we were all asked, when are we going to be back in the studio together? And I predicted we would be back by now. In fact, about a month ago, I said. Before now. Yeah. I remember. And, And I'm not, I'm horribly wrong. So I'm going to confess that I don't know. And I think it's important that we should go back and look at the forecasts that we've made. And one of the things that I think this virus has taught us is that we're, that things like this are very hard to predict. Of course, people have gotten, have made correct forecasts, but very rarely and probably by right. accident more than anything else. So I told her, I don't really know. <laughs> On the other hand, I did say that my estimate of the, of, I think of what, what from the viral perspective, I don't think I was too far out and particularly think about the Northeast as a region, not the United mm, States as a country. Right. But the Northeast as a, as a region has, has looks exactly the way Europe looks. We have, we're averaging, the entire region is averaging around 50 deaths a day, probably a bit fewer. Um, we have very few new cases. Um, and in other words, we don't really look, I was looking, we don't look any different from the United Kingdom. Um, Germany is a little bit lower than we are as a state. But, but what I didn't predict was the, the, essentially the, the polarization, the reactions. Um, and so, therefore, I, I'm just, I can't offer any forecasts of any validity going forward. So, so Adi, I want to I commend you on tracking your forecast because that's something we talk about a lot and don't do as much as we talk about. More people do. And, you know, I know on Twitter you followed the forecast of someone who was forecasting deaths in Florida. And you yep. recently did an accounting there that you were very proud a couple of weeks ago. Not proud. You were impressed that impressed someone would, would actually give a forecast down to yeah. the, the number. So it's, it's vital. So the only way we learn actually is write down our, our judgments and then see how they turn out. Um, one thing I, I, I can't help but react to what you're saying, though, is we've talked about this over time, this heterogeneity, regional geographic heterogeneity. And one story I have, do you guys believe the story? Like the story in my mind is the Northeast actually had to deal with the consequences immediately. The rest of the country with pockets of the West Coast as an exception, the rest of the country was like told this thing was going to happen when it, before it was actually happening. And so the feedback they got was it's not as bad as they say it is. And all these precautions are all, you know, a bunch of costs for no benefits. And it was almost the worst learning environment possible for most of the country, except for the Northeast. And they've suffered since then as a result, at least that's the story that I'm kind of carrying around in my head. But one of the reasons I had that story is that you guys pointed out how heterogeneous the country is. It's like, we're a little, a bunch of different, countries and we took this thing at different time scales and therefore have had very different experiences. Yeah, when I heard Adi's comment, I actually thought you were going to go into a different uh, entire thought process, Adi, which is the following. What does it mean for it to be over? And here's what I mean by that. Um, we've seen some data that suggests that uh, a large fraction of people that recover um, still have symptoms for a long time. We've seen some recent data that suggests there are heart ailments uh, for people. And we don't know if these last a week, a month, six months, five years, the rest of their lives. We're not sure about that. So to me, also, 
we've seen some data. Um, let's say we all believe maybe it's in 2021 that there's wide scale distribution of a vaccine, maybe. Um, how effective is that vaccine? Who is it effective for? So when I think about it being done, I'm thinking if you mean um, transmission rates being you know, infinitesimally low, I think there'll still be regions of the country even at the end of 2021 where that's not true. Sure. I think if you're asking me whether there'll still be health-related issues from COVID, I'm confident there still will be at the end of 2021. Um, if you're asking me whether there'll still be, will we have a vaccine that will um, give us the type of herd immunity, Adi, that you've talked about many times on the show, um, I'm not confident of that by the end of 2021. Okay, well, let me respond yeah, I, I mean, and say, this was an 18-year-old, so what do you think she means? She means behavior, our behaviors. Behavior. Are we back to normal? That's what she means, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because, I, I mean, I, I kind of think, I, you know, the virus kind of wouldn't be over in the virus sense. It may never – I mean, it could, again, be the seasonal yearly thing like the flu. I mean, it's just kind of a part, a, a part of our existence from this, you know, point forward too. I mean, like – so, I, I mean, as far as, like, the virus somehow just kind of be disappearing from society, I don't think that's how we define being over – I think I'm going to kind of actually agree with sort of your 18-year-old's viewpoint. What we really mean by that, yeah. I think, is when are we, quote, unquote, back to normal? Right. But, but even, that, even that's a yeah. bit of a moving target, right? A lot of folks wanted that to be Memorial Day. And because of that, <laughs> yeah. we've, we've had a second. A lot, a lot of folks treated it like it was Memorial that's Day, That's right. Too. So we had, a very, we had a normal first half of June or so. Guys, I want to jump to what I think is the heart of the matter at the moment. This is Monday evening. Lots of news is breaking. But there's a real intersection of sports and the straight-up coronavirus part of it right now. And it relates in some way to Eric's, Eric's idea, which is long-term consequences of this thing. And there's been this emerging thread that there may be heart damage as a result of coronavirus. And the news today and yesterday has been college football conferences postponing or canceling the fall, maybe going to have it in the spring. The MAC was the first conference to do this the mountain west has come on board the strong indication is that the big 10 is going to do it as well and the big 10 is saying the reason that put them over the fence this is a very tough decision they say but the reason that's put them over the edge is the evidence that they've had some players come down with heart conditions as a result of coronavirus and so i think we should unpack this a little bit we've, yeah. we've had this jama article kicking around a little bit about potential cardiac effects of coronavirus you guys were kicking around some. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Like, what, what do we understand now? Coronavirus, when it first came out, everyone talks about it as a respiratory disease. And then we learn, actually, it's not respiratory, it's blood. It can go everywhere. It does go everywhere. And we, we have consequences in various parts of your body. And now people are talking about heart consequences. So can you tell me about the heart consequences of coronavirus? Because it might be costing us college football, among other things. I'll, I'll jump in. I, don't, we, I'm, I mean, one of the things that I'll add is that I think it's not an unanticipated, a very bad inflammation, immune responses cause inflammation of the heart. So okay. this is not unusual. Um, and you see this with, with uh, bad cases of the flu as well. The real question is how long do they last and what's their recovery? And that's, that's, that's the real question. There's, some, there's a baseball player who, who, who clearly had some heart inflammation. You'll typically see it in two to three weeks um, after a very bad immune, immune, severe immune response. The question is, is it permanent? Was it, what's, the, what's the consequence on young I mean, people? What, what, are, what, are the, what are the health consequences? What are the behavioral or the physical consequences of having an inflamed heart? I wish I could tell you. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know. I will, I, will, I will say the number one, I mean, what, what, what's the number one? Uh, I mean, heart disease in general is kind of the number one. Way out? Yes. Way out, way out for, 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 for Americans. You're out. Um, and it is a particularly a prevalent <laughs> among, you know, linemen, basically. I mean, linemen struggle with heart problems. Yes. Yeah. Predominantly after their careers are over because of the tremendous, I mean, you need a pretty, a pretty optimal ticker to kind of carry that amount of weight around, basically. Okay. And, and that velocity. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I think it's particularly concerning for football where, you know, the linemen we kind of think of as a, a kind of a vulnerable population in this context, not just because the heart disease, you know, sort of consequences might be more dramatic for them, but also because they're going to be the ones with probably the greatest risk and exposure once the games start being played. Mm -hmm. Just to just to clarify, by the way, since I've done a little bit of research on this over the last couple of days and uh, part of it was with Adi, but I've done some research over this. Um, let's be clear. 
there's two types of inflammation. I'm no expert on this, but one is the heart itself, which obviously potentially could have very long-term consequences. The other one is actually called chest wall inflammation. And so that, if you look up any virus, any bacteria, any virus, chest wall, chest pain is a very common symptom of that. And it's actually not the heart. It's actually the chest wall itself. So I don't know what, when I read the study that, you know, as Adi points out, non-random sample that says 78% of people have some sort of heart issue afterwards. Um, first of all, if you, when I actually read the study, it's, they're not talking entirely about the heart. Someone with chest wall inflammation is counted in that as well. Yeah. So we and have chest wall inflammation is presumably a more temporary thing. Uh, yes, almost yeah, that is people. correct. Yeah, yeah. That is correct. And yeah. so I don't know what fraction of the abnormalities, but I, I, I agree with you, Kate. I think it's, it's a serious point, which is I think we're still learning. I think we're, we're all data people. I think we're still learning about there's no way anybody can say they know the long run impacts of COVID on people that recover. There's just not yeah. enough data. So imagine, imagine that's the state of the world, because it is. And then imagine you, you are the president of one of these universities who has to make the decision on whether your school plays football. Right. And then imagine you, get, you take a phone call from the mother of a student who's contracted coronavirus and plays football and is having heart consequences. And you know the data are questionable. You're a university president. You're sophisticated. And yet you've got this, 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 this kid who's an athlete of yours with real heart consequences. And so, and all, and, and not, not, not to take away from that particular kind of anecdote, but also on the other line are the university lawyers, presumably. Well, because the litigation that could right. result so from this as well. That's right. And, but so, and so I'm pushing you guys because I, I mean, I don't know, I have no idea, but I'm saying, look, we can talk numbers and we can talk rarity and we can talk overweighting small probabilities and all those things are part of the psychology of it. And then there's the very real, like, individuals, one individual, one college football player who gets coronavirus and has long-term health consequences as a result is pretty bad. Setting aside the litigation responsibilities or liability. So I don't, I mean, I don't, how would we as statisticians, as analysts, want these guys to make this decision? I, I think at the end of the day, you know, most people would say all statisticians have to make decisions based on, and I don't mean this in a comical way, I mean in the way that we use it, it's a loss function, which is, you know, there are some benefits. Let's say on the one hand, you have economic benefits. You also have, I think it's fair to say, um, kids playing. There are health benefits to playing. I'm not saying the injury part. There are benefits to playing. There's, well, well, come on. They want to play. There's, most of these kids want yeah, to play. Yeah, no, no. There's psychological, emotional. There's all kinds of benefits. Um, then on the other hand, you have the risk. I think it'll be very interesting to see what decision various schools make. I mean, one of the things you could argue is this is one of the times you might say people should choose what's called a minimax rule, which is I'm going to make the decision that minimizes the maximum possible loss. And in this case, it's obvious that you can imagine back to Shane's point about litigiousness and lawyers, you could easily imagine for, you know, schools saying we have to be extraordinarily risk averse here. We just yeah. have to be because we just don't know. And as a matter of okay. fact, uncertainty, let me just say, this is well known in statistics, but also in decision theory. When, in, when uncertainty is largest, that's when you tend to see the rational thing to do is to choose a risk averse strategy. Okay, that's really interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, a lot, there's a lot of psychology on people being too loss averse, not considering the portfolio of choices and all of those kinds of things. But you've just made a really interesting point as uncertainty maximizes. And what you're really saying is that left tail really gets out there. Exactly. The, the bad, the bad, what you mean by uncertainty is like that, the bad consequences can get really bad. It's like, okay, you want to protect against that. Yeah, I'm going to just, I'm going to react against that slightly. It's not that the uncertainty, sometimes we don't want to hone our uncertainty. Listen, 5 million people have had coronavirus in the United States, probably many, many more. 5 million people have tested positive. That's a lot of people out there. You could probably get some bounds on the frequency of these things, even with estimates, if you cared to do so. I have to say one of the things that, that in my conversations with, with lay people, they don't typically look at both sides of the equation as Eric wants us to do. You have to look at the risks and rewards, and they, they both get composited into a loss function. And most people don't do that. They only look oh. at one side. 
And, it's hard uh, to look at. It's hard to look at. It's, uh, this is hugely. This is. There's a lot of psychological evidence on this. It's people have dispositions to look on either the positive side or the negative side, but they also have states, and it's hard to switch between states. You tend to focus on either the gains, kind of promotion focus, is a psych terminology, or prevention focus. You're focusing on the left side, and Eric is calling us to look on both at the same time. And it's really, it's not human nature to go back and forth to switch out of those states and consider the right tail and the left tail, the right tail and the left tail. Yeah, what's also interesting about Adi's comment is, um, I think if you start taking the exercise of trying to quantify this, it's going to lead you to the risk-averse solution. That's my belief. Really? I thought, I thought Adi was kind of going the other way. Which yeah, is actually, my, my, I am going the other way. I think comment. it's going around. I'm giving my opinion is that if you start to quantify it, that in some sense, I mean, I, I don't want to call it prospect theory, losses more important than gains and all of that. But as people start to think about, you know, um, quantifying the downside, I just think it's going to be so salient, the downside risk. That's just my opinion. Well, you're, are, you, are you predicting what they're going to do? Or are you prescribing what they should do? I, it's a good question. I'm pre that's a prediction. I'm predicting, predicting what they're going to do. I, I don't want necessarily what they're going yeah, to do. And, and I, I, I don't know enough to kind of evaluate the proper risk as far as litigation and type and exposure to that type of stuff. But I think the, the more specific question that, for example, Nick Saban had an opinion on today is whether or not it actually is putting the students at more risk to have them play football than not. He, his argument actually today is that they're safer in their college football program where they're practicing social distancing and they're, they can kind of be watched than they would be out in general society. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not agreeing with on that. But that he he is making a, a much more kind of basic argument, specifically just about the specific question of risk to COVID. I, so by the way, while, real quickly, while we're on coaches making statements, Jim Harbaugh made a big statement, really kind of a promotional push for let's play football, and he put out some facts about the Michigan program so far. And there's an interesting feature about the whole college football landscape. You know, in in hockey or in baseball. We hear the test results every week. You know, we've heard 726 or whatever it is tests in hockey over the last five days, no positives. And we hear the same thing about MLB. You don't get that in college football because there's no reporting and it's up to each school and no school wants to report these things. So Harbaugh puts out there what their numbers have been. And the, the numbers have been, he's claiming we're doing really well. I've got a dog over here that's unhappy. Um, he's, he, he said, look, we've been disciplined. We've been wise. We've been good. We've been good on our protocols, and we are. We want to play football, and we should be able to play football given what we've done. So, I think it's interesting that coaches come in here, and as the commissioners and presidents are making their judgments, making decisions, coaches are trying to lobby and get in to the public conversation. But given given that, I mean, if 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 that kind of very positive kind of testing news is carries across, you know, is 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 you know, basically the cool. case yeah. in a lot of these college football programs, why haven't they been releasing that obviously good news? But Shane, that's also, I think your point also is that um, obviously Michigan's in the Big Ten. So do we go, maybe Michigan is, maybe Michigan is the best of all schools and what they've been doing and Harbaugh has done it. And you know what? How about the, I don't even forget even how many schools were in the Big Ten now. I know it's more than 10. Um, 12, I think. 12, okay. I think it's 12 also. Um, maybe what we should be thinking about is the worst of the 11 yeah. other schools in the Big Ten. It's not about Michigan. It's about what's the distribution of severity across those schools because Michigan has to play somebody. And Who's those going to be the Miami Marlins of uh, the Big Ten football, right? Right. Exactly. right. Well, so these, these, these you know, the, there are some conferences that are making decisions, but ultimately it's universities that are going to make decisions and presidents. Yeah. And they're going to they're gonna make them in both ways. So, Scott Frost, another coach, another coach, you know, lobbying for things. Scott Frost says, hey, if the, I'd rather play Big Ten because we're a Big Ten school. But if the Big Ten decides not to play football, we want to play anybody. We're up for playing anybody. And this is the it's, – it's the first sign of the atomization that I talked about last week where it's like everybody for themselves because we have heterogeneous preferences, heterogeneous risk tolerance, and heterogeneous health states. And we have 130 schools. So we also have heterogeneous could information a, this could be a fascinating, ridiculously crazy scheduling and rescheduling system for the next few months. I think the other thing is we transition from, obviously, we've talked we talk for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the show so far about, let's call it, adults and heterogeneity, and now we're going to college. Why don't we talk about the other big topic, which is 
now that schools are about to reopen, um, we're, or maybe reopen in some places, we're starting to see a lot of data that, um, you know, what's happening with when children go back to school, both the increase in coronavirus rate among children, the data I've seen suggests, uh, this was, I think, from the CDC, that over 100,000 children have tested positive in the last two weeks of July. And again, I think we all agree, we're, at least in the short term, we're not as worried about the death rate, although it won't be zero. 100,000 even times a small number is not going to necessarily lead to zero. I think the concern is how many adults are going to get infected by those 100,000 and how many, especially how many teachers are going yeah. to get infected, how many healthcare workers, how many parents are going to get infected. And I haven't seen any data suggest that if schools open up to the degree that people suggest that we won't see a resurgence of the virus. We'll just see another spike period of, you know, it's the same routine. It's like Groundhog Day. Cases go up. Two to three weeks later, hospitalizations go up. Then deaths go up. I don't know why we would believe anything different if the number of people with cases goes up dramatically. Can I, can I just ask a clarifying question? The, 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 that 100,000 children or whatever, that is just Total. among the school-going children over the last two weeks? Or is that oh, just that, the number for right. all I, I children? No, no, I think and, I would, I, and then I would need a baseline for how many children like four weeks ago or six weeks ago got corona. Right. We have five million cases in the country. Um, and the, the child, child proportion of, of identified cases is by far the smallest. Um, I, think, I don't think it's 100,000 in two-week period. Um, I don't, I, that's I've this, I, well, I've read it in four different places that that's yeah. the number. I've also read the number that the total number of children cases is about 400 and something thousand. And so about a quarter of those have happened in the last All right. Week. Well, that's starting to sound, that is now, it's starting to sound a lot more compelling. But by the way, th- this reminds me of the conversation we were having seven minutes ago about statistical reasoning, risk, optimal risk aversion in the face of in, 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 you know, inevitable des when you're making decisions for hundreds of thousands of people you can't be you can't you can't base your decision on consequence to every individual right i mean this is in some ways i feel like this is a horrible thing to say but it's just reality i mean you're trying to you're trying to maximize the well-being of millions of people it's almost inevitable that we have a we have some of worst case scenarios and some are idiosyncratic and some some are the product of the choice and some are inevitable but I, I it's it's it seems rough it seems rough fellas for university presidents to make decisions based on anecdotal phone calls with parents of students even when i understand the humanity of that and i understand why they want they want to consider they should consider that but you're making decisions for hundreds of thousands of people and the statistics matter here and 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 zero zero fatalities is, is not reality right I, no, no, it's not. And I, I, I think the, I think you're right. And I think it's sort of like, you know, I think, um, you know, even, it, it, it's further complicated by the fact that you're balancing sort of obviously like financial decision making with, with, with kind of public health decision making and, and, and everything which is like ta- that as which well. Is taboo. That's taboo, right. of course, even though there's, a, there's an inevitability there as well. But yeah, no, I, I, I think that, you know, I agree that you can't sort of like, you know, this is not going to be over in anybody's estimation, when we have like zero deaths to, to coronavirus, maybe over like a, you know, several future years from now. I mean, that, that's not the kind of minimization function. If, if, you know, MLB had decided to shut down when the first case popped or something like that, it would already, it would have lasted, you know, two days. Right. Right. And so that's not the case. different. Is it different if you're making decisions for amateur athletes who are students than just professional athletes? Or you're making decisions for like eight-year-olds. Or eight-year-olds. Yeah. But the eight-year-olds, yes, that's right. That's right. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. It does feel different. But- now, I was just going to I was just gonna say, we talked, obviously, about, you know, R and the, the, the contagion rate. And, you know, I would imagine since most of these children are in areas where the contagion, you know, the number of people that get it for each person that gets infected is well above one. I think the concern here is that when you add a significant number of cases, now we don't know that that number is true for children, by the way, that number might be less than one for every child that gets infected. But as we add a large number of cases to an area with a high infection rate, to me, yeah, of course, I'm concerned about the 100,000 children that test positive, but I'm concerned about just the multiplier effect about 
that 100,000 could turn into a million adults. You know, when R is greater than one, the number goes up, not down. Right, right. And, you know, it reminds me of a headline I saw. I didn't read this article. It sounds incredibly anecdotal, but there was a headline today that one child infected 28 teachers. One positive child infected 28 teachers. And what's true is there's a lot of student-teacher interactions, and that's, that's a much more vulnerable population than the children because of age differences we've seen in coronavirus. All right, gentlemen, that's good for the first half. Enough on coronavirus. We're batting things back and forth. These are tough decisions these guys make. We can talk analytics, but that's different from the actual decision-making. I'm sympathetic with university presidents and MLB commissioners. Um, we've You're got listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. After Dark Edition, number one, first ever. Necessity. Out of necessity, we are strewn across the United States and recording Monday evening, adult beverages in hand, sporting events on the TV. Eric's probably got four monitors going on, four different events, catching up. We'll get the update on what's happening in the current NHL playoffs and MLB games. But we've just been talking for the last half hour about coronavirus. We want to kick into the more sports-oriented part of this program. I know what I'm most excited about. I'm curious, gentlemen, what you're most excited about in the world of sports. NHL, the playoffs, they're starting so, up tomorrow. So give us the update. Give us the update. Oh, so they, oh the qualifying round was so fun. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, I, I watched a lot of hockey this weekend. Um, I'm, I'm kind of amazed. I mean, I guess, you know, I'm amazed by how the teams have gotten kind of up to speed. I mean, I know they've been practicing and stuff like that, but, like, it looked like playoff hockey out there. Even among really? the kind of teams that were playing, the top teams that were playing the round robin, that was, there were some spirited games in there. So are the um, are the Bruins are the Bruins just a little depressed pouty little boys? No, the Bruins are a team that are an interesting team because they're one that did, definitely did not come out of the gates pretty very strong. They yeah, seem to have right. not really woken up from their Corona nap yet. Yeah. Um, they got they ended up with the fourth seed. They were supposed to get the first up, seed. They, they the fell fourth? from the first seed to the fourth ah. seed, All which right. is pretty amazing. So, so um, Shane, challenge, challenge. Give us the other headlines because that's probably as much hockey as we can take in. I'll give you one: the Leafs came back from three goals down with four minutes left in an elimination game. That was an incredible game. Took it to game. OT, won it, and then lost and then the lost fifth game. Yep. In the next that, game. Well, that, I mean, that's probably the most, most Leafs thing to do, to be honest with you. <laughs> Inspire a little bit of hope and then crush again. It's, it's how the Red Sox used to operate before they switched. Okay. Um, yeah. but, but, um, and the other headline is the Penguins are out. And so we can all be thankful for that. Uh, yeah. And, and, and then upcoming series, the Flyers Canadians looks like it's going to be a barn buster. I think that'll be fantastic. Okay. Well, those are two old school teams. That's kind of yeah. fun. So yeah. The Canadians, Canadians are a decent hockey team these days. Yeah. Though, right? again, they had a particular, it's going to be a matchup of, of the, you know, uh, the teams that had kind of the best round Robin among the top four, as well as one of the strongest, you know, okay. the, the Canadians were like the 12th seed and beat uh, knocked out Pittsburgh. They were the twelfth. Okay, so it wasn't or eleventh. They were they were one of the lower seats. Oh, Pittsburgh was definitely the higher seat. So All right. let me ask you a question. I um I was looking to see whether I was talking to my cousin earlier today, and we were discussing whether there were any at all home ice advantages, even in the bubble. And apparently there are. Yeah. Yeah. Could you like, for example, one thing I was not aware of in hockey is that the home team gets what's called the last change. Yep. So they get to put the line on last at the end that's of the right game. so when well, well no, no it's 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 at, at every stoppage actually so at every stoppage of play the teams can teams can choose to shift at the stoppage of play and um the home team gets the uh last shift uh, like gets to basically update their information based on what the other team does yeah 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 okay so so how advantageous is that how big a deal is that not like compared to having fans and sleeping at your home. Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, like of all the things that kind of add into the home ice advantage. Yeah. yeah. I think it is a relatively well, minor strategic. Partly because these are like short shifts, right? These are like for 90 seconds. These guys are going to play. So yeah. I mean, much- it does. It does. I, I mean, at ends of games is when it's, it's consequential because, you know, kind of like basketball, if it's a close game, I mean, it's, if it's a close game, there's some strategic element to the last couple minutes where you might want to have you know certain players out against certain other players so i mean there okay. there is a strategic benefit to it i just think in the kind of fast flowing sort of frequent shift you know continuous play of most of the game it doesn't confer much of right. an advantage Good. okay okay well what about on the, in the west you're a western guy 
Um, wasn't there a, a super interesting series out there with a, with a, with a flagrant hit and there was a lot of animosity? Yes. Well, so the, the, the Calgary Flames, my hometown team, are kind of, a, a, you know, are, are, are I think uh, trying to uh, kind of reignite the, the Flyers of the 70s kind of feel to their, uh, you know, they're kind of a bad boys, team. They're bruisers. a little bit bad boys. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, and there was, a, there was a flagrant hit. I mean, there was one of the Winnipeg Jazz stars was knocked out by a, okay. uh, a hit um, that looked – to, to this completely biased fan is as somewhat accidental, but whatever. Um, and, and they ended up losing the series. And so the flames are in, so I'm pretty excited about that. But yeah, I, I, I think the casual fan would probably be cheering against the Calgary flames. Adi and Eric, if I would ask you, do the Winnipeg jets still exist as a franchise? Would you have said yes or no? I wouldn't have any idea. Winnipeg I, jets? I don't have some idea, but I would have said no. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a teachable moment, guys. The Winnipeg Jets, they're back, but not this season. They just got knocked out. They're they're not back. They're not back this year. They're back, but in a grander kind of holistic sense. They're out of the playoffs. They're out of the playoffs. So they're in in the same field as my Jets from New York? Where, Where are they? Uh, Winnipeg. Not as bad. No, but they're not. I mean, oh no, 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 no. I mean, historically, nobody matches the Jets. <laughs> I mean, that's a yeah. That would be more. The Maple Leafs would be kind of the closest, I think, uh, kind of equivalent. To the and Jets. does hockey? Does hockey? We we talk about tournament design all the time here on Morton Moneyball. Does hockey reseed after the rounds of the playoffs, or is the there's this? Do we know is the structure fixed? Like one plays eight, and then it's, I believe it's rese- I actually, I have to think about that. I don't think they normally recede. So I don't know if they're doing anything God like knows that because what they're doing this, this year. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, everything's thrown off with the – I mean, they don't usually, like, decide the one to four seeds in a three-game round robin either. So I, they may have altered the rules because of that as well. But I, I don't think they – they normally do not recede. I right. see. And is right, there so- anything in hockey, like, about like, – because I was thinking about this about the NBA as well. Like, um, give me an example. Uh, my son, my other son and I were talking about this today. We were talking about, um, let's take an example of a team like the um, is it Utah that has Rudy Gobert, Rudy Gobert, right? And he's a big center kind of guy. And right now they're aligned to play with the Rockets, who the tallest guy we know they play is like mm-hmm. six foot six or Robert Covington, six, seven. Right. Rudy Gobert will get run off the court if they play them. So the question is, do they want to lose intentionally to potentially play the Denver Nuggets who have a big center in Jokic and therefore their best player or second best player actually can be an effective player. So do we think in any of these sports, whether it's hockey, whether it's basketball, um, that these teams would ever, given there is no real home field, that they would ever lose to get a better matchup? I think it's so against the grain of how they're trained. There's just, it's it's like asking, it's, it's, it's like asking in football, like, don't score the touchdown, like, fall down on the one-yard line because you're going to run out the clock. It's like, yeah, strategically it makes sense, but it's just so against the grain. Or let them score their quick buckets so you get two for one in, in, in basketball. Yes, there might be this minuscule strategic advantage, but it's so against the culture. I mean, I, I mean, I, the one thing I do think teams do do, especially in the NBA, it seems like, though in baseball they will do this too, is like near the end of the season when there's a pretty, you know, if they're kind of projected into a particular slot, they might start resting players and not kind of trying as hard in the sure. last few games and stuff like that. I don't think that's, sure. of all things, that's probably not, I mean, that could be happening over the NBA because I feel like there's, you know, a lot more fixed and slotting. I, I but think, in hockey, it was such a short kind of, yeah. you know, round robin. I, I, I don't think any team was kind of playing like that. Actually, just, just you brought in the MLB. The, I don't think the MLB does it that much because the, they do it to a degree, certainly. But players have their, their statistics their, their, mm-hmm. their, and they cherish them. And uh, while they do appreciate rest and they'll, they'll take that, they do play as hard as they can. And uh, while they're playing because of the, and the baseball, the back of the baseball card, uh, it's the only sport that really has that individual performance. Action. No, no. And, and it, I, I, I agree. Once the players are in there, I don't think they're really there. It would be more on the kind of like, not the players would not be in the game. I mean, you've watched the last weekend of baseball every year, yeah, right? Yes. Right. How but, often it, is your ace going in that yeah, time? Yeah. I mean, even if they it seems out of right. contention, it's probably going to be some rookie that you're trying out or something Look, like that. I was watching a game today. I guess I mentioned, I was watching I forget, Utah against somebody today. And like, both teams didn't play their best two or three players today. Yeah. And so it might not be that the uh, players aren't trying while they're out there. It's just that they may be resting players. Now, 
does the management literally say we'd rather be the six seed to play the three seed than the five seed to play the four seed? I don't know if that's happening or not. But I'm going to tell you, I was thinking that today when I'm thinking, wow, Utah's not playing its three best players. Boy, if they lose, they could slip to the six. Play Denver seems like a better matchup than playing Houston to me. But what so do you, Eric, do you – Let's talk about the basketball yeah. in the NBA. What have you seen? What are you excited about? Well, Ben Simmons is out for the Sixers. He's out for the season. Yep. So what, it looks like the Sixers are now hopeless. Do they have any possibility, Eric? What do you think? No, no, they don't. <laughs> okay. um, I mean, you weren't particularly <laughs> optimistic on him with Ben Simmons. No, so, I, I, so. I was not. Op- right. I should, I, just to yeah. be honest, I was not optimistic with Ben Simmons playing. Um, I think, again, uh, when your best pl- – I'll say it again for the thousandth time. When your best player is your center, you have a problem yeah. in the NBA today. And, and Joel Embiid is the best player on the team. But Ben Simmons is great defensive player. He's now out. Uh, no, I, I think the Sixers are an ill-conceived team. I think he's out. I think, I think they're going to get beaten in the first round. I don't know why you would favor them against the Celtics. I think the Celtics are an equally well-coached team. I think the Celtics are a slightly better defensive team. And the Celtics are a better constructed team right now, especially with Simmons out than the Sixers are. Well, that's that's ironic, isn't it? Given that they gave up Horford and and Sixers and the, and the Sixers signed Horford, so it just kind of underscores well, the management. Not just that, but we basically made the Celtics for the next five, ten seasons when we traded. Again, I'll talk about one of them, in my view, one of the worst trades in the history of basketball. Yeah, exactly. We, you know, when we traded the number. Uh, three pick and the Sacramento unrestricted first round pick, which we ended up drafting Markel Fultz. Who's not even on the team. Now, yeah. I know you're going to Jason Tatum. I get it. I get it. It's awful. It's awful. Ex post. It's truly awful. Like, like, like can't get over it. Ex post, but did we know it at the time? And it's, we don't want to be these people who, Oh, Mac Brown sucked because he didn't recruit, you know, um, Johnny Manziel. It's like no one knew Johnny Manziel was going to be Johnny Manziel. I'll say the following. Well, so I'll, I'll agree with you. I'll say the following. Um, and you talk about this in all of your rankings of quarterbacks and other people. Again, I, I wasn't talking. You mentioned the players. I didn't. I said they traded the number three pick and Sacramento's <laughs> unrestricted pick for the number one pick. That seems like a bad trade to me. Okay, so you don't like you don't like the trade. Okay, fine. I don't like the trade. Exactly. On the day of the trade, you didn't like the trade. No, because no. there was no evidence to me that this was like a LeBron James like year where he was a consensus, you know, or a Kevin Durant year. Although Kevin Durant, I think, was picked second in the draft, not first, <laughs> or anything like that. This was Markel Fultz. I mean, some people like Fultz. Some people like Tatum. Some people like. You know, there were a lot of people, a lot of players people like. So I didn't like it that it was two high draft picks for just moving up two slots. That yeah. I didn't like. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. How much more regular season, quote, regular season basketball do we have before the playoffs? Two games. Basically, each team has two games left. So let's call it Tuesday and Thursday of this week. Then, as you guys may remember, the East it's already out for. Um, in other words, we know the eight teams in the East. Um in the West, the Suns are making this epic run. <laughs> I know there's four teams playing for two spots, and it's for eight and nine because if nine ended up within four and a half games of eight, which we now know by definition it will happen in the West, there will be a play in game in the West, oh. play in series in the West to okay. determine who gets the eight seed. Right wow. now, Memphis is leading in that hunt, followed by Portland, followed by Phoenix, and followed by San Antonio. Okay. And so Phoenix has gone six and zero in the bubble to put themselves yeah. back in, um, but two of those four teams will be playing next weekend. The, the the better of the two, the eight seed, only has to win one game. The it's a very strange thing. The nine seed yeah. has to win two games. Man, I just love I love all these crazy little rules they came up with. I love these hidebound, long-standing traditionalists coming up with these nimble little fixes here and there. I love it. I love yeah. that they seeded. They put different numbers of teams from the East and the West in the bubble. Well, Who would have come up with such a thing? It's well, just fantastic. No, what they did was very simple. If you had no mathematical chance of ending up within a certain number of games of the eight, meaning you could not have made the playoffs, even if you went undefeated, you didn't come. 
No, so that's the way it was. I kind of I'll support Kate on this. I feel like a lot of leagues would just have been, well, that's too bad. You, you know, they just would have Symmetry, like, kept it equal in the nah, East and West. Can't be asymmetric. Can't be yeah. asymmetric. What are you doing? It is what pretty amazing. But I have okay, to admit, guys. I'm really rooting for Phoenix. I, I, I don't know why I don't really like anybody that much on Phoenix. I like Devin Booker. It's a great uh, – DeAndre mm-hmm. Ayton was another guy they thought – you know, he's another guy. This shows you. When they picked him number one, whatever, two years ago now or a year and a half ago, Everyone's like, oh, my God, this guy's a bust. Well, I don't know. He's averaging, like, I think, 20 and 12. And, oh, wow. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, and he's – and, a, you know, you, if you watch the pundits now, they're saying he's getting better and better. Phoenix is a dangerous team. Oh, that's all okay. I have to say. They're a dangerous team. Well, well, I got one more topic before we go to baseball because poor Adi's just sitting here waiting to talk No, baseball. actually, I have a question for, for basketball that I wanted to pop in there. How many years on average does it take before you knew that one number one pick or two pick or top good pick question. Good turns question, into yeah. something good? I mean, so obviously we see it. We see, we remember the ones that are immediately good, but we don't. Okay. Let's, 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 let's make that question more precise. Let's say how many, how many, how many games or how many parts of a season do you need to see before you are, what do you want to say? 90% sure you know the ceiling of this athlete or 90% well, sure? Well, no, that you, 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 can, you can be sure that your pick was either bad or good. And, I mean, that's one way to and, or, or Yeah, or, I mean, I'll ask a less precise than Cade's numerical one. How, has there been any number one pick that has been initially bad, but then somehow got good after a couple years. Yeah, I mean, no. were they either either were they either really good from the start or really bad from the start? Just to point out, so many of them are so many of them are so young when they get when they enter yeah, the. They NBA. play one. They play, they all they have, all they have to play is one year in college. That's right. So nineteen year old. No, Markel Fultz is he? Do we know he's toast now, or where where is he? Is he terrible, or he was so, terrible for the Sixers? Yeah. So here, here's. I make a run in China. Yeah. <laughs> I think the answer becomes, why aren't they good their first year? If it's because of injury, then that's obviously a reason. Mm -hmm. If it's because they didn't get a lot of minutes, well, that's endogenous too. Because most Mm -hmm. top picks, especially one, two, or three picks, the coach is going to want to play them all the time. So the fact that they're not getting a lot of minutes, that's not a good sign. But they could have been drafted into a bad kind of situation. We have to go. I, I would go back, and I'm happy to go back, for next week, I will go back and I'll look at the top three to five picks of the last 20 years in the NBA. I can't think – doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I can't think yeah. of one top but, player but, but it, that, it, that had a bad first year that absolutely became a superstar like you would expect for a top five pick. Yeah, it, I, it, I would claim that you learn faster about your basketball picks than you do any other sport. Uh, obviously, baseball is the slowest. I mean, obviously, it's five yeah, or six long years. Minor league, uh, minor football. League we see a lot of we see a lot of misjudgments in football early on, and a lot of it has to do with the team dynamics and coaches and all that stuff. But ba- basketball is imperfect, but it has to be the fastest of the three. Mm-hmm. No, I I will just good kind point. of point out that I mean, Audi's po- the the team that is typically picking number one is not a good team. Yeah, yeah, and is not That's necessarily right. a well-run team. So, okay, like you know you- that. I'll give you a different sport. How quickly do you know whether a professional golfer, say one year out of college, is actually got the stuff to win a major? How quickly do you know that? Uh, well, well, if they win one one year out of college, then then you know. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I would have preferred to start yeah. the whole show with. We're forty five minutes in. We haven't talked about Colin Murakawa. Come on, fellas! Did you not watch the tournament this weekend? I did watch it. It was it was great golf. I mean, it was his second major ever, which is impressive to win a your major when it's only your second ever. Um, if you add up his amateur and pro tournaments, I thought you know they're, they're going to search for any statistic that makes it look impressive. He this is his 29th tournament ever played as an amateur and a professional. That was Tiger Woods won the Masters, his first major, his 29th tournament as an amateur and a professional. Oh so really? Wow. Yeah, so they're trying to draw some analogy. I mean, Morikawa is much older. He's 23. Tiger was 21 when he won the mm-hmm. Masters. Much older. Um, <laughs> I thought it was. There was a time. This was this was the part that was shocking. With like six holes to play, there were seven guys tied for the lead. Right. What a tournament. And that right. was extraordinary. And they weren't, they weren't randos either. I mean, that no, was – Well, Jason Day, former number one in the world, was there. Dustin Johnson was there. Um, there were a lot of top uh, – Bryson DeChambeau, Mr. I Can Drive at 400 Yards was up right, there. Right, right, And so there were a lot of great players up there. And what made the tournament – you know, it's one of those shots you wish there had been a crowd, but there was a, there was a hole – which was the 16th. 
Um, it was a 295 yard, but par four. And he went for the green and he hit a shot within like eight feet of the hole. And he made the eagle putt, which gave him the two shot lead. And so that was the key shot. You know, it's one shot. You know, if that ball goes five feet, this shows you the sort of, I don't know if it's randomness, but if that ball goes five, if you've seen the shot, if it goes five feet farther to the right, it hits the rough, doesn't roll into the gap. It rolls into the rough, sits there, and maybe he makes par on the hole instead of making an eagle on the hole. So um, there was basically that one shot, one on the tournament. So much fun, so much fun. And it, and it really did come down to one of these great shots. I mean, this is going to be one of the great shots in PGA history. That's, a, that's, the, that's, the, that's the kind of shot it was. But Murakawa wasn't quite just completely out of the blue. Despite being this young and despite being this, only a second major, he's been really competitive this year. Like, I think he's won at least one other, if not two other tournaments already. And, and, and before he won, he also has been like right there at the end with some others. I mean, it's absurd how good he's playing this I'll, year. I'll tell you what I liked also about a question that was asked of him. It might have even been asked, by the way, Steph Curry snuck his way into the tournament and was, got like some press pass type of thing. And I'm pretty sure he asked Morikawa this question, <laughs> which was, do you look at the scoreboard? And just so you guys know, this, um, Colin graduated from the Haas School. Certainly impressive. He said, this is school at Berkeley. At Berkeley. His answer was, of course. Like, why wouldn't I want to know where I stand? Like, who? And because you hear all these golfers say, I never look at the leaderboard. He's like, I look at every damn hole. I want to know exactly where I stand. Well, it makes a lot of sense from a risk-taking perspective. I mean, they, the payoffs of these things are so convex, you want to win. And if, you, and if you're sufficiently far behind, you have to dial up the variance. And so these guys should know. Some of them, I think, sincerely say they don't want to know because psychologically it may change things. But strategically, you, you really kind of want to know. We've only got five or six minutes left, so there's plenty of baseball to talk about. One of the intriguing bits bouncing around the interwebs these days is this idea that the Strohs, all these, all these guys, all these all-stars on the, on the Astros are playing below their career averages right now. Is this a real thing? Is it a thing, guys? Because we're supposed to be the sophisticated guys on this. So, so Altuve is whatever, 200 basis points below his OPS or whatever it is. Is that a thing this far into this crazy season? Do we believe the Astros were like totally, you know, enhanced numbers because they knew the, the balls that were coming at them. Uh, this just, was uh, happening yeah. in mid May. Yeah. yeah We'd wave know, it off. It's not even mid May. It's still April. I mean, this is yeah. uh, it's 15 games in the season. I mean, come on people. This it's is not a time to, to go though. Adi. Yes, that's true. No, I mean, they could have a, this could be the year where they have a historic by their standards, their historic low yeah. point just but I, I do think it's just small sample variance certainly at this point and it could even be by the end of the season small sample variance i mean that's only 60 games right. if so we even get 60 games about. per team we're, in. are we talking about a 100 point drop or a, or a 30 point drop if 30 point that's nothing for even for a season the mm -hmm. standard deviation across the season is 20 points in a batting right yeah. but across at this point 100 points is standard deviation yeah. so I'm, I'm not concerned um not at all at this point of the season one of my favorite mathy things to do especially in this type of thing is to do you know the weighted average thing which means the following one quarter of the season's done that's a fact they've played 15 games they have 45 left so let's imagine you're 50 points below your batting average for the season right well you've got to be then 17 points above in the other three quarters to make up for it so if you're a 280 hitter and you're hitting 230 you got to basically be a 300 hitter now for the rest of the season to get yourself back to 280. If you think you're a five, if you think you're a 600 team, well, they're six and nine. Okay. So they're playing 400 baseball. So they're, you know, 200 points below. So for them, they're going to have to play two thirds baseball now to get to 600 afterwards. So this simple type of what I call weighted averages, they're a quarter below that has a weight. You then compute what they need to do in the other three quarters. And, you know, I agree with Adi, but a few more games and the math gets really brutal on the kind of performance you start to need. Like, it's, it's like, wow, they need to be two standard deviations above the prior, which, by the way, may be off. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, the question is, how bad do they have to be relative to their career averages to make the argument that the Astros have egregiously benefited from sign stealing? And the answer would be, you know, if they end up, if, if three of their best players all end up at the end of the season, 50 points below their, below their average, we might have something to talk about. But at this point in the season, that, that their three players are 100 points below their average, I'm not that concerned. 
Um, obviously, I like to say, you know, uh, it's not no evidence. It's not slam dunk evidence, but it's certainly on the right track, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the, I guess the one part that I would caution from a purely psychological perspective is that it's a great narrative. And sure. we get sucked in by narratives, right? So let's be a little careful on this one, especially. The audience points a great one, which is it's, you know, if you were looking for evidence, you would say it's not just about one player. In other words, if it's true right. for this multiple true. players. On the other hand, on the other hand, isn't their performance in some way correlated because of the same yeah. pitchers, yeah. they bat against the same pitchers and that kind of stuff? Right. And there's been some surprises. I mean, if I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Like, don't look people, which team in baseball has the most wins? It's either the oh. A's or it's the it's is it the A's? I mean, it's the, the A's. A's. The it's the A's. Oh. There they there they are again. The name of our show is Moneyball. This is yeah. Billy Bean, and God damn it, every goddamn year here he's up there. Now maybe it's early. You're right. Here he is. Obviously, let's not to make a big oh, deal. Oh, no, Adi, let's remember baseball. <laughs> remember the playoffs. Right. Two, top two teams from each yeah. division and the other two best teams. So the A's are sitting there. Last time I looked, they were eleven and four. So you know what? It gets to the point very soon where you're saying they're going to make the playoffs. Yep, but, yep. You know, if they play four, if they play 500 ball the rest of the way, they're making the playoffs. They are. To remind me, we you said 15 games, and if I remember, they're going to play. They're, they're 12 and four. They've actually played 16 games now. 12 and 12 four now, four. even better. Okay, yep. so the, we're playing 60. So there's about a quarter of the season. Is that what you're saying? Yep, exactly. A little bit yep. better than a quarter. Well, 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 no, they played 16 games. The, yeah, the yeah. St. Louis Cardinals have played five. They're like <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, yeah. just the in Mar- the infancy Mar- of their season. Played 10. Um, yeah. So it, <laughs> no, but those the, are the two teams that are under. The Cardinals. The Phillies are down too. Cardinals yeah. don't even have any games scheduled until this Friday. Oh, yeah. I mean, at some point, you know, I know it's, they've already said it's going to be winning percentage, but you're going to have some teams – you know, you might have the Cardinals having played 40 games and, you know, that they'll be compared to teams that have played 60. No, they're going to play a lot of doubleheaders. Um, we, you know, let's take a moment to, to reflect on the patheticness of a seven inning game, but they're doing them and they're doing them all the time and they're going to play more of them. Yeah, right. And maybe will they ever go smaller than seven? We have six inning games. No, oh God, seven is already <laughs> offensive. Like a little league game. It's ridiculous. So guys, fellas, we're down to the last minute. Give me, give me one thing in the next week you're most looking forward to in the world of sports. Very quickly. Hockey, hockey, more hockey. Can- Canadians, <laughs> uh, flyers to be specific. Yeah, right. I'm really excited. As we talked about earlier, I'm excited about the four teams in the West battling for the last two spots in the NBA. Okay, that's great. Adi. I'm just going to enjoy watching baseball. The Yankees got the Yankees got to go. On. Anyone on? I'm, I have the, in the background the, uh, the A's Angels game right now. I watched Trout f- fight one off and he's a brilliant hitter. He's just a pleasure to watch. All right. You're such a purist. It's beautiful. I'm looking <laughs> forward to seeing who Nebraska schedules in their, in their completely uh, uh, the improvisational college football scheduling. All right, guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week, even during coronavirus time. We are doing this virtually, and we'll keep doing it virtually. One-hour shows covering coronavirus in the first half or so and sports in the world of coronavirus in the second half. Appreciate you being here for the whole team. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Matty D. That's Matthew Datz, the producer of this show. And Cade Massey, thanks for being here. Come back.